Well, brethren, as you turn in your Bibles to um, Daniel and chapter 9, um, let me quickly repeat uh, one or two of the announcements that's been made. Uh, our conference, our annual conference, is still on the cards. It's uh, set for a week from now. And again, the appeal that we register. Uh, so that we may receive all the information we need to get. It's free, and uh, the churches themselves uh, have put together the finances for all the technical staff that will enable us to have this conference. So please, uh, let's all set aside as much of the time as possible and hear our guest speaker. Uh, from the U.S. Um, I've been officially informed that he's already recorded his messages, he's already sent them. I mean, he definitely is enthusiastic. Let's make sure that we are as well. And then uh, the Children's Conference, uh, again, it's been said it's this Friday evening, including Saturday, three sessions. So again, let's make sure that uh, we put all uh, our little ones read it, particularly evangelistic, uh, meant to challenge them to embrace our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be live streamed <clears throat> on the Lusaka Baptist Church Facebook and YouTube channels. And those are the major announcements I needed to repeat, apart from the fact that this coming Sunday morning, immediately after our morning service, which will be slightly after 10, we'll have uh, a very brief members meeting. It will be physical to be in this place. Uh, cameras will not be part of it, so let's just make sure that uh, we are here. And if you're not here, you can always then ask uh, church members afterwards so that you remain informed. Well, Daniel and chapter 10, or rather chapter 9, we're coming to the end, finally, of our study of this uh, extraordinary prayer. It was given by Daniel. He himself gives us the context. He was a fairly old man by this time. He had lived through quite a number of uh, kings in, in um, Babylon, and then also in um, um, the, the Median, uh, Persian Median Kingdom as well. He had also lived there. And that's what he says at the very beginning of uh, chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Emid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which really is the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. That's the time that he prayed this extraordinary prayer. What moved him to pray? This extraordinary prayer was what he read in the scriptures. And he tells us there, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. 
So there he was, calculating going backwards and realizing that 70 years should be around the corner. And consequently, he took it upon himself to seek the Lord, to pray that the Lord would be pleased to fulfill this promise that he makes in this particular text in Jeremiah, and more specifically, chapter 25 of that book, that the, the people of Israel who rebelled against him, that he was going to send into captivity, he was going to restore after 70 years. And as this man prays, we, we try to learn from him. And we've taken a long time learning from this prayer. Uh, probably the longest time we have spent in any one section across the whole book of Daniel. And it's been quite deliberate because there are two areas that make or break a Christian. Two, and only two. One is Bible intake and the other is prayer. That's those two. When you lose one of those two, you are like a person who's trying to uh, get a train going on only one rail. It won't be long before that journey grinds to a halt. We need both. And so what we have here is basically 50% of the Christian life, prayer. And it's just important that we should ensure that we, our prayer lives are oiled, oiled in such a way that they, they are consistent and that our prayer lives are growing. What you notice primarily about this prayer is it's, it's realism. It's realism. And we shall see that as we come to, to the end of uh, this entire prayer in a few minutes, as I speak about prayer with intensity and urgency. This man, as he went on to pray, responded to the situation. And this is the way he puts it in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, and for them what that meant is wherever he was, he then prayed facing Jerusalem, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So this was not a regular prayer time. It was special. And that's why he speaks in terms of being in sackcloth and ashes and, and fasting and so on. It was special. And what made it special was the occasion. He, he needed God to answer so that Israel might be restored. You capture something of this intensity when you come to the end of the prayer. And that's what we are looking at this afternoon. Verse 19. You can't miss the intensity there. Verse 19. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and ask. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God. 
because your city and your people are called by your name. I want to repeat. There is realism there. There, there is emotion involved as Daniel is praying. If you miss that in that verse, you've literally missed what is obvious, what we call the elephant in the room. And therefore, if there's one thing we need to learn from this prayer of Daniel, it is that same aspect. That God is not a slotting machine that you sort of come with a formula and as long as you punch in the right things, pop, out comes what you want. God is a personal being. And because it's a personal being, we must be ourselves as we come before him. When we speak to him, we must speak in the light of whatever it is that we are dealing with. And sometimes there will be a demand for a passionate expression of emotion. I've never forgotten many years ago, probably 37, 38, maybe even getting close to 40, being in a church prayer meeting. And uh, as we were praying, different people were praying, different people were praying. A sister in the Lord who was a nursing student at that time, she's since gone to glory, prayed. And the attachment with the issue she was praying for, this is, as I said, almost 40 years later. I, I've, I've never forgotten. And especially as she came towards the end, the climax, I remember after that prayer meeting, we went for the evening service. It used to be just before the evening service. And then I went to my university room and I wrote down what I felt. And I ended what I wrote down with the words, Lord, teach me to pray like her. Teach me to pray like her. At some point, as I, I, I've read that piece a number of times since then. Uh, at, at one point, I wrote that it looked, it felt as if she was alone with God, that the rest of us were not there. And her prayer was for revival, the revival of the church. And as I was preparing this sermon, my mind went back to that afternoon in that prayer room behind the church building where there was that prayer meeting. The reality, the reality. One way in which true prayer is recognized is with the intensity that it reaches. The intensity that it reaches. When Daniel was praying, oh Lord, hear, Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Bottom line here 
is that he was not saying anything new. This is exactly what he had been praying about all along since approximately verse 3 or verse 4 up to this particular point. He, he has been praying to the Lord, so obviously he's been speaking to him that he might hear. He's been praying to the Lord, um, confessing the sins of Israel. That's been the large chunk of this prayer. He himself said it in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And therefore it only makes sense that she should be saying, Oh Lord, forgive. It's what he's been asking for over and over again throughout this section. And even when he says, oh Lord, uh, pay attention and act, again, that's what he has been saying since verse 16. He's been asking for God to now finally do that which is needful. There's a difference between all that he has said so far and what he is saying now. And the difference lies in the intensity. In the intensity at this point. And hence the sense of repetition. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. He's reached the crescendo of his prayer. And you cannot miss the holy passion that is in this praying. The thing I want us to notice very quickly before we move on is that there is repetition there. And you may say, but in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, let's quickly turn there, the book of Matthew and chapter 6, our, our Savior condemns the aspect of uh, repetition. In uh, verse 7 of chapter 6. Verse 7 of chapter 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Is this what Daniel is doing? No. So the problem with what Jesus is correcting here is that of calculation. It is that of this cold-hearted approach to God as if he is a machine. So if I can punch in so many words, then I'm likely to get out some results. And that's what Jesus is condemning here. He is not condemning genuine emotional engagement with God. He's not condemning that. Because what you have in our text is real. The other way in which you notice this is that this is not at the beginning of the prayer. It's at the end. It's not the beginning. And genuine prayer is often like a, a, a jumbo jet that's taking off from the runway. It begins slowly because it's picking up. And that's what was happening even in this prayer. He begins, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It's taking off. It's, it's, it's on a slow motion along the runway. But what you have at the end, basically, is the plane that has taken off, the emotions that have engaged, and this plane is now going through the clouds, as it were. That's what is happening here. And often you can tell the difference when, you know, an individual thinks that God only listens to those whose decibels uh, are deafening. Because the moment the person just begins to pray, he's just opening his mouth. We are not deaf. That's not what Daniel is doing here. He hasn't from point one began to shoot off with But clearly, he has prayed, and as he's praying, the intensity is growing. And finally comes that last gush. And with that, the prayer is ended. I think that's where we need to learn from him. Because this is prayer reaching its peak. Remember, this was not every week. This was not every time Daniel prayed. This was a serious event. The, the future of an entire nation hung on a verse of scripture spoken by God. Daniel did not fast every day. Otherwise, he would have disappeared from the face of the earth. He did not pray in, in sackcloth and ashes every day. But on this occasion, he did. And the outward finds expression through this final inward cry. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, give attention and ask rather act. What you also notice is not just the intensity, but also the urgency with which he wants an answer. The urgency with which he wants an answer. We read there in this verse, delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Do not delay. He is praying here. What does he mean? The difference here, first of all, is the difference between praying for your friend when they've got a regular illness. The regular illness, it could even be COVID, but... The point is the person is not on a breathing machine. The difference between that and praying for a friend where the, this illness has been protracted. The person 
has gone from being the bouncy, chubby individual, and now he's but skeleton and bones lying on that bed. And now all kinds of gadgets are connected to his body. And he is on a life support system. The way you pray differs if you are realistic. In one case, it's the regular prayer. In this particular case, there is intensity. And it's like you say to the Lord, Lord, if you don't come through now, we'll lose him. If you don't come through now, this person is going. Lord, do not delay. Come in now. Answer prayer now. Or else, by tomorrow, We'll be hearing the message, he's gone. She's gone. That's the difference here when he's saying, delay not. Because you see, God had promised that in the 70th year, I'm coming through. There was a, an arrow that was, or spear, that was stuck in the ground. And that point was uncomfortably close. He needed God to act now, lest we go past that point. Lest we go past that point. And that's the point that he's concerned about when he is saying, Lord, do not delay. Do not delay. You promise to restore your people. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. But Lord, we need it to happen. And therefore, don't delay. Act now. Under the next point, you are going to see one of the reasons why he is bringing in this aspect of do not delay. Perhaps let's quickly go to it. And it is his chief motivation, which ought to be our chief motivation when we are truly praying. And it is the glory of God. The glory of God. Notice what he says when he says, delay not. He says, delay not for your own sake. Oh my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Now let's face it. This is the only true prayer. It is when it's about God rather than about ourselves. I've said before that when you go into a prayer meeting and all the people are offering prayer requests as though God is a powerful servant who is supposed to be attending to us, then just know there is a foundational problem that needs to be addressed. Because that's not the right picture. 
The right picture is this. We are his servants. We are going to him to ask for his own glory that things may change here on earth for him to be glorified. And you can't miss that from this prayer request or from this prayer of Daniel. It was about the glory of God. Why is he making this appeal? Well, for one reason, or many more, but at least one of them is that if, if God was going to wait for the people of Israel themselves to change, and then he responds to that change by then giving them back Jerusalem and the promised land, bottom line is it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, we see this in verse 13. Look at verse 13 inside the prayer. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Listen to this. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquity and gaining insight by your truth. In other words, this calamity we have suffered for over 60 years has not produced the fruit of repentance. Sadly, that's the way the world is without grace, without God's grace. You can literally destroy the entire planet and all that it produces are people with fists in the air saying this God, what kind of God is there? You say he's a God of love, but how can he do this and so on? But they're drinking in sin as if it is water. And in the meantime, they still want a benevolent God. Instead of recognizing that the reason why God may have allowed us to go through this is so that we can end up throwing away our idols and clinging only to him. Throw away our sin and cling on to him in terms of a life of holiness and righteousness. So what the people of Israel were doing happens literally all the time until grace visits a soul. And then that soul awakens to what God may be doing and responds appropriately. Responds appropriately. And that's what revival is. Revival is not God waiting at the finishing line and then the church cleans itself up. Because if it can do that, then the church has revived itself. Rather, revival is God himself bringing repentance into human hearts. It is God himself bringing repentance into the life of the church collectively. It is God himself reviving his people. And it is part of an answer to the prayers of God's people. And that's what is happening here. Daniel is saying, Lord, waiting for us, it ain't gonna happen. So you act 
for your own name's sake. You act for your glory. Because really, the truth of the matter here, looks like the national side is beginning to scream. The truth of the matter here is, is, is the fact that God's name is great, but when you look at God's people and God's city, Jerusalem and the people of Israel, they are in a miserable state, in a terrible state. And that is not speaking well of the true God of heaven. One of the hymns that we sing was by Charles Wesley. And it's entitled, uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. The point that Charles was bringing out is that, you know, God is so great that I, 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 I cannot stand preaching in empty churches. I can't. The, 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 the thing is a, is a contradiction. And therefore, I... I would like to be in a place where a thousand tongues are singing the praises of God, lifting as it were the roof as we're saying this morning. And I'm saying, yes, yes, this represents something of the greatness of our God. And that's what motivates people to pray. That motivates people to pray. It's it's that God, there's a contradiction here. These are supposed to be your people, the people of a holy God. But they are taken up with sin and wickedness and evil. There's a contradiction. These, these are supposed to be the people of, of God who have embraced or seen something of the, the unsearchable riches of Christ. But look at their prayers and their singing. It's so weak. It's so feeble. There's more enthusiasm in, in the football pitch or at a political rally than there is in the church of the living God. Oh God, for your own name's sake, act. Revive the church and do something better. Many years ago, I've never forgotten this experience. I, I was on a preaching trip in, uh, in, in the UK. And that was around about uh, the year 1996 or thereabouts. And uh, as I was going from church to church, I was getting more and more depressed because the church I would go to, there would be a few old people and the rest of the place was empty. I went to another church, a few old people and the rest was empty. And I've never forgotten how this thing was, was almost like a dark cloud that was coming over me and I was trying to to get it off me. And basically the struggle was something like this. Is this the future of the church? Because this does not represent 
the glorious creator of the entire universe. This is, this is like a, a, a small backroom activity. And yet, the Bible I read speaks about the God who's in charge of the whole history. And yet, this thing was hitting at me with some reality that this is what's going on. And I remember it must have been like up to the sixth or seventh church, and I couldn't go on anymore. I just couldn't. And I was saying to the Lord, Lord, I think let me end this thing and go back to Zambia. I can't. And the Lord was pleased at that point to take me to a new place. And in that church, they were going through a week of prayer. A week of prayer. Monday all the way to the Lord's Day. And what they did is early in the morning from 6 up to about half 7, the church building was just open just like this. So as people are going to work, they'll drive in, come in, pray, and continue. They go, others are arriving, praying, going just like that. Until around about half seven or eight, the pastor himself stood up and closed the meeting. Lunchtime, exactly the same. From 12 up to 2, cars were coming in, they were praying and going out. Others were arriving and so on. There was prayer. In the evening, from 6 up to 8. The first one hour was praying alone, and then the second one hour I stood up to preach. The difference was remarkable. Remarkable. I remember the very first day. I'm not a very emotional person, or I hope I'm not. But on that particular occasion, I was emotional as I went back to my room to pray, I mean to sleep that night. The entire dark cloud had just evaporated. I found a church that was in the heart of revival. The place was full of young and old people. Complete mixture. They were not like this waiting to sort of die and close down the building. There was life. That's what revival is. It is God himself acting. The pastor did not do any sort of tricks to try and bring in the, the community. But he certainly got his church praying and praying and praying. And you could not miss that God was doing something in that church. The same England. The same doctrines of grace. But here was a church that was alive because God himself was at work for his own name's sake. Brethren, that's what Daniel was saying to the Lord here. That Lord, you are someone. You, you are something. You're glorious. Do something that shows that because Jerusalem and indeed your people are called by your name. Your name. And therefore, this is bringing shame to your name. So be jealous for your own glory, O oh God.
Be jealous about it. And of course, God answered in due season. A king came up. We'll learn about that in due season. And the people of Israel literally marched free out of captivity, heading back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the temple, recommenced the worship of God in that place. God did it. Israel had no army. God moved the heart of the king of Persia to release the people of Israel that they might go and do this very work. A God who is jealous for his glory. And it happens again and again in history. Just when you think, let's close up the whole thing called church. Because the believers are spending more time in sin than in holiness. The churches are almost empty because God's people are chasing everything else except being passionate after God. His word is closed and it's collecting dust. The prayer chambers are empty in people's homes because they are busy chasing after money. From nowhere, from nowhere, God raises a voice, and out of that voice, raises a new movement, and out of that movement, brings in a fresh breath of revival, changing the whole scenario. And often, a few people were praying. And they were praying like that lady I spoke about at the beginning of this sermon. Unwilling to be content with anything else. And it was like a small crack, a gap to begin with. But as that prayer continued and continued and continued, it reached a, a crescendo. It, it was fairly clear that it was an unstoppable work of the spirit in the soul and God heard from heaven rent the heavens and descended and changed the entire place brethren this is the prayer that we've studied here this is not one plus one is equal to two this is realism this is God working in the soul of one man called Daniel and he prayed. It was real prayer. Emotional prayer. Intense prayer. Urgently calling on God to glorify himself. I plead, brethren, as we close our study in this prayer, that we don't miss that. That we too should learn something of praying for such showers of blessing that the world will say, whoever this God is of these people, he must be a great God. Look at this. Look at this. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us 
to pray like Daniel. Help us to stop playing church. Help us to see a great day. A day in which you, O oh God, will truly glorify yourself in your church. That it might be unmistakable that the God of the universe is a glorious God. See it in the church. Oh, Father, visit us, we pray. Make us a praying people who mean business with you. For Jesus' sake, amen.